0: Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist, and chief development officer at salary finance. Hi everybody, welcome to the show Working on Well-being. Happy New Year everyone. I can't believe it's 2022. You know, I was getting ready for this podcast, but I couldn't help but look back because 2021 was so disruptive. I mean, I've got a sister and a nephew that are still have covid. And all these business challenges were insane. But one of them that seems to be lingering and, and is really relevant to our great storytelling and conversation today is this idea of the great resignation. You know, employees are jumping ship. They're looking for new career opportunities these are like unprecedented rates and employers are struggling trying to figure out, well, how do I keep my top talent? And employees are saying, well, you know what? I'm leaving because I want flexible work hours. or I want to keep working remote or I want higher wages or I want balance. But loads, and I mean, loads of them are looking for better healthcare benefits. You know, the pandemic shown distinct light on the fact that Health insurance is unaffordable for the average employee. We have got to figure out ways to do this. And today, I'm so excited because you're going to hear this amazing story about Brella Insurance and how the team innovated around health benefit solutions. But I I think I'm most excited because you're going to hear this story about Brella, but you're going to hear it through the voice and the personal story of Amanda Turcotte, who is their chief insurance officer. And I've been talking about this meeting, Amanda, this conversation for at least a couple of weeks. And my son is laughing at me. He's 25 now. And he's like, I have never heard you more excited about a conversation about supplemental insurance and underwriting and a conversation with an actuary. But I am so delighted. So welcome to the show. I cannot wait to get started. Ah, uh, thank you so much. It's a perfect way to kick off the year for sure. <laughs> Uh, maybe we're going to solve this great resignation together. But before we get going, you really are unlike any insurance executive I know. And I kind of came up through the insurance industry as well. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to share a bit of your pedigree and then we'll get sort of the behind the scenes story. So before joining Brella, Amanda was chief product officer at Ostra, which I think is now resilient, right? Yes, it is. Yep pretty amazing company because they were the first mobile, I think first mobile and mass market and uh, values-based insurance company in the US. So really revolutionary. Before that, she was chief actuary and head of underwriting for employee benefits at AXA US. And I think you were at Chubb and Prudential. And she's also a fellow of the Society of Actuaries. So this is a woman who deals in numbers, who deals in people, who traverses startups and corporates with huge amount of ease and grace. And what I thought I would do, Amanda, is before we really dive into purpose and well being and benefits and trends and underwriting, I just want people to get to know you because I had the pleasure of hearing your story. So I was hoping that you gave us a little context on Amanda, the person, not just the you know CIO, but the yeah, the person and. Tell us a bit about how you grew up, maybe who were some of your early influences and experiences, and how did that shape your purpose and where you are today? Is that okay to start there?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So I grew up in Alabama, both my folks, uh, Alabamians for generations. My roots are are down south. My parents were both employees at large organizations. My mom was in a big hospital organization, was a pharmacist. My dad was a civil engineer, worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So like a lot of Americans, were employees at big organizations making regular retirement contributions to their retirement accounts, staying at their employers, and really valued the employee benefits that came through those organizations. And I grew up having values, you know, brought to me as well and still carry them. So that's my background, but not, um, I'd say a spirit of entrepreneurship, which I think is a real benefit to those who grew up in that environment. Knowing how to start a company is a big deal. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I sort of figured my course would be in a large company, you know, and went to college, majored in economics. That university
0: of Alabama, right? Because you're born and bred in generations of Alabama.
1: (laughs) It was indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Roll tide all the way. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I was at the University of Alabama, majored in economics and French linguistics, neither of which lead to a very obvious career path. Um, I didn't know what I really wanted to do, um, but I knew that I liked the subjects. So, you know, when you're a college student you major in your passions but while i was at college made some interesting life decisions i guess i actually eloped at the end of my first semester of college
0: of your freshman year of your freshman year
1: right of my freshman semester yes yeah. so you were like 18 i was 18 yeah 18 um, my oldest daughter was born while I was still in college. I was 19. You know, when I graduated, I had a household to support. And that's not something that lends itself to continuing with higher education, getting your master's in economics or your doctorate in French literature or whatever. <laughs> I
0: mean, I have questions about, like, how did you take your daughter with you? What was childcare? I mean, I think about all of the benefits and You had to figure that out. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, actually, and I was blessed to have some amazing professors at University of Alabama. I did end up taking my oldest to some of my French classes just that last semester (laughs) to finish up. And my French professor held her while I was taking my final exam. (laughs) He was like bouncing her around the room.
0: Gosh, that's awesome! Such a saint. Alabama all the more. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, no, they're a, it's a great school, a great program. I'm sure there's a lot of college professors out there that would do just the same. It's amazing the support I see because now my, that oldest daughter is in college herself. <laughs> I see how much really her professors pour their heart into their students, right? Such a value to any student's life. While I was there at Alabama too, I had a professor who came from, I'd say a different political and, you know, economic background than I had been exposed to when I was growing up. He, he grew up in Oklahoma, you know, when it was like Dust Bowl in the 30s. And, you know, really had the opportunity to see economic perspectives from a different point of view. You know, what are the implications of policy decisions on people's lives and having a, a broader worldview in terms of, you know, my economic education, really started playing a difference in in my life. And I see how that path goes to the rest of my career.
0: Well, was that kind of a, a turning point for you? Because it, like you say, it, you took the subjects of French and econ because you were passionate about them, but there's obviously not that immediate intuitive connection between the two. But we all sort of have this moment. I had it myself with anthropology. I thought I was going to have a business degree. I came out an anthropologist, right? And so there's this sort of turning point where you think, oh my gosh, something happened. How did that conversation or how did that those professors influence this? And was that a moment for you or were there a bunch of little moments that kind of led you to your path?
1: I'd say that planted the seed at that point. I like, I think a lot of um, American households, I was in a sort of survival mode. I had had one child about to have another one. I was pregnant with another one when I graduated college. Oh my gosh. No, there were some, it was a little bit of a roller coaster for a few years. Actually moved up to New York, got my first job while uh, before my second daughter was born at a big insurer here in New York and did the corporate thing, the actuarial student program thing for a long time, taking exams, learning the basics of insurance, working through a rotational program in some really great companies, like you mentioned, Guardian, Prudential, Chubb. And having those rotational programs gave me the opportunity to see the these companies' From a lot of different lenses, I worked in dividend calculations. I worked in reinsurance and like got to make those reinsurance relationships, worked in international operations and discontinued operations where. <laughs> You know, where you get to see a big collection of different businesses that the company were once driving forces in the company and now maybe aren't so much, but insurance companies still have to maintain and take care of those businesses because with customers that are still relying on the insurance carrier to meet their regular insurance needs. So all of those experiences sort of combined and I was head down, ended up getting divorced from my first husband after a while. So then was a single mom of three kids. at that point and working to support them, which I know is a is a place a lot of folks find their themselves in, but had gotten to the point, I had my fellowship and sort of finally took a breath in my career. I was working in reinsurance at the time and said, realize that on a day-to-day basis, what am I doing? I'm building tax shelters for wealthy people every day in individual life reinsurance. Right this is not what I want to be doing with my life. This doesn't resonate with me. This doesn't resonate with the issues that I deal with on a day-to-day basis as a single mom of three kids where doing well, but it's still a little bit of a scraping by. And what is my insurance company doing to serve normal Americans and the insurance needs that we have? So that was really my moment where I said, wait a minute, I'm going to do something else with my career.
0: And that was health insurance. So you're dealing with life insurance and just understanding. Yeah. I I mean, the first guy who sold me life insurance I'm like, what is this? I bought it because I thought I had to have it because he made me feel so guilty about, you know, you've got a son, you're a single mom and you should have all of this. And I had no idea, Amanda, what I was even paying $400 a month for, you know, and this was a while ago, <laughs> so it was a lot of money, and but I thought I had to have it, but it was because I didn't understand it. So you are dealing with people like me and agents and all different types of insurance, including health insurance. And right, this is going to age, but my first health insurance deductible I think was five hundred bucks, right? So and now it's like thousands. <laughs> I don't know how people do it. I I really. Don't
1: yeah that's actually a change that hasn't taken. I mean, you don't have to be that old to remember the days of you know a five hundred dollars deductible. I think when high deductible health plans started, it was less than a thousand dollars would qualify you, you know, to qualify as high deductible. And now that's an average deductible or lower than an average deductible, right? So, yeah, the market has really changed. I mean, I remember filing rate increases in my very early 20s for a closed block of health insurance. And I would write to the states and say that medical trend was 8%. And so I'd project as an actuary does. I'd look in the bet history and say, well, it's been 8% for the past few years. Obviously, this is going to continue for the next 15 years in my projection period. And the states would write back and they'd say, you have to lower your projections because that's impossible. It can't possibly continue at this pace forever. And guess what we're saying? <laughs> Wow, that has in fact continued at this pace forever.
0: So you didn't go away, and you know you had three kids. You couldn't really self-reflect in some spa somewhere. So what is, what did that look like? And how did you you know how did you emerge out of that? What did that brief moment? I'm sure it was just a moment with having children and being you know single. it's, it's rough. How did you pivot?
1: Yeah, well, I have to say being afforded the luxury of of a New York City commute, where you are forced to live with your thoughts um, for 45 minutes or an hour a day on the train. (laughs) Train. I've been been there, done that.
0: Totally understand.
1: (laughs) That's your mandatory spot for self-reflection on a daily basis, especially in the days uh, before at early iPhones or, you know, before you had your corporate email at your fingertips 24-7 and could really play Candy Crush anywhere you wanted to, or subway surfers, whatever your game of choice is. Yeah, back in the early aughts or the late aughts, we had to live with our thoughts while we were on mass transit.
0: And so how did you come out of that? So you just, uh, you know, after these myriads of train rides, where did you land?
1: Yeah. So I I actually took the opportunity to look at what else. I loved working at AXA. I actually, incidentally, met my husband at AXA. (laughs) Um, And we got married and yeah, half of our wedding party was from AXA. So uh, that comes in the benefits category. (laughs) Yeah. So we have very strong roots there. It's a great company. Now the Equitable here in, in the US. But yeah, so I knew I wanted to stay there, but knew I could follow my such a Large company too. I knew I could really sort of follow my passion within the company. So first, I uh, took a spot in the life department and new products and new markets because through my prior roles, I had really honed my skills at developing product, thinking creatively about how can we use these building blocks of insurance products we have to solve a pro- a problem at hand. So one thing that AXA was looking at at the time was. Individual life insurance distributed in an automated way. So simplified issue, term life insurance, which today, every carrier has the solution. But back in 2012, they didn't. Um, It was sort of a new thing on the market just coming out. Um, And so we developed um, one of the first products that could be applied for, underwritten, and issued within 15 minutes. And that was the Secure Now product. I have to say, didn't sell that well. But it was a great learning
0: experience. (laughs) Do you think it's because of consumer education? I mean, people just didn't know or didn't understand. I've
1: developed a lot of new and different kinds of products. And each time I've learned something. So I think with that one in particular, I've learned the importance of really being aligned with your distribution strategy. And you have to talk and really understand distribution before you develop the product and the process to like apply for and deliver this product. So, you know, that was the beginning of my I think passion towards investigation and learning and really doing the research before developing a product. From that role, I went on to head up like you said product pricing and underwriting for the group benefits business at AXA. I was trained as a health and group life underwriter or actuary, but had grown my individual life skills being at a company that had no group business at all.
0: (laughs) Paving your own path.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I actually have sort of unusual for an actuary. I have a lot of experience in both individual health, individual life, group life, and group help. So when I'm developing product, I sort of can merge all of those items, all those types of business lines, find optimal solution. But it's fast
0: me, Amanda, because that almost leads me to think about your economics and your French background, because that truly is a very different approach to deriving patterns and looking across a group and then down at an individual. It's almost like an anthropologist. So it fascinates me that it's the brain of an actuary, honestly, (laughs) because it's not just at that point, right? I mean, you're looking at human behavior underneath all of that. It's fascinating.
1: Well, yeah, and I think that's one thing that's, and I've I've written about this in an article that was published by the SOA, Society of Actuaries, is we focus as a profession so much on the quantitative aspect of product when that only drives a fraction of our result, right? The quantitative drives results once the product is sold, but it doesn't drive results to get the product sold. That's the qualitative aspect of our product which has to work with a product, or otherwise, it's not going to be successful.
0: But you're a voice in that you're, a, or at least a minority voice in that thinking, because everybody else thinks data, 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 and qualitative sciences like my own are sometimes not even considered science, right? Because it's well, what it so what you're talking to people, you have some focus group and in interviews, what you know, so what, but it's, I think that what I hear you saying is that you're bringing all of that together and, and that even more reliance on qualitative is sort of, I don't know, you're, but you're, I'm a technologist too. So it's really sort of, you know, human centered design thinking in so many ways, right? Yep.
1: And that human-centered design, I didn't know what that was ever working in a large company, was first introduced to that while I was working at Ostra, like you said, now resilient. But we worked with some amazing researchers from FEM Finance, and they are experts in qualitative research, in-depth interviews. And I was fortunate enough to sit in on those interviews as a product expert. My role in those interviews is to sit in the corner and be quiet. And if a technical question comes up that's going to derail the conversation, I jump in, I give the clear, concise answer that answers the question. And then the interviewer can continue doing what she's excellent at, and driving
0: towards good qualitative data, right? It's <laughs> so hard to listen. <laughs> it's so hard to want to solve the problem while you're there when your job is simply to listen. And that's so hard. I, I I yeah. I think um was harder
1: for me when I was younger, but I have to say, I think being a, a mom of a large brood has helped me with my just sitting and listening and not solving the problem.
0: How large is that brood right now, Amanda? The last time your viewers met my brood, I, or your listeners
1: met my brood that was three when I got the forest when I was younger. Now it's seven.
0: It's amazing.
1: Yeah. I had little Teddy uh, last December 1st. So he's a year old now. Oh. Uh, when Brella was... Uh, was just, I guess a year and a half old Teddy was born. And, and I will tell you, there is not much room for maternity leave at a startup, but
0: <laughs> that's okay. Cause we all just having this conversation with Sarah, when I had my son, we were given four weeks off. That was it. And then you went back to work. So I would have loved to have had 10. I'm so Italian, you know, I would have loved to have 10, but I'm I love my one and only Tommy, but seven sounds amazing. <laughs> and I guess they are a lot of fun. <laughs> um, you know, Amanda, part of what I hear you trying to solve, you know, salary finance, we solve for that problem, I think, in a different way. I talked about my deductibles, you know, being so high now. But I have an employee who he needed an MRI for his son. It's completely unexpected. He plays soccer. He hurt himself. And it was a couple thousand dollars. And, you know, the way we solve for it is with a personal loan so people could cover the deductibles. But when I looked at the data, more than a third of those go to pay for unexpected medical expenses. So we should team up and how we solve this problem together, I think. But it's, you know, like, I don't know, my a broken tooth. That was one of the ones that we have um, testimonials for. I, I don't even think about that, you know, and broken arms and kids and MRIs. And I know that part of your, what you're doing at, at Brella is really to innovate around solving this. So maybe we can jump into the Brella story, but I think Laura might have told me this, but I, is it true that a 6 a.m. text was got me to join Brella? is there a story there that have to do with having seven kids that you're up at 5:30 and texting people at 6
1: yeah well that's the only time i get to go to the gym actually uh, <laughs> but um yeah actually those cracked teeth would be covered by brella and listening to people over the course of you know my time at startups i had my own consulting firm for uh, for a period of time where you know, I I worked on these human-centered design engagements for insurance carriers and brokers, and you know, all sorts of clients looking to solve uh, insurance problems and valuing the qualitative research. But uh, listening to folks talk about financial hardships come out of medical surprises was one of the issues that was forefront of my mind as an opportunity to innovate when Veer. Idwani, the founder and CEO of Brella, texted me at six in the morning and said something to the effect of, "Hey, a friend said I should reach out to you if I need to develop a new insurance product."
0: Oh wow, wow! So it was even about the design part. That's awesome. So it was what you were passionate about too.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so and of course, I was like, "Absolutely, let's talk today." So we got on the phone, and he shared with me his observation that, you know, the existing world of supplemental health benefits has, you know, three main products, accident, critical illness, hospital indemnity that are offered in various combinations. Some groups have access to all of those. Some may have one or two on their platform that they offer to their employees, but none of them, if you look at the data, the numbers are strongly compelling because they're not taken up if you're lucky across all three, you get double digit participation, right? Often single digit participation in terms of percent. So that doesn't scream compelling product. (laughs) right? But he also had, you know, listened to his distribution, who really believes in the product and understands the value um, and the issue they're trying to solve, those products are trying to solve, people have unexpected medical expenses, anytime they have to go to the emergency room. Heaven forbid there's a hospital admission. Um, If you have a critical illness, right? Um, Each of those problems is addressing that need. Meanwhile, like my background in micro insurance or inclusive insurance, I was tuned into that sudden unexpected financial shock. And that's what's driving the financial hardship. When we have expected financial expenses, those are things that a household can plan for, that can budget for. They can either find, derive new sources of income or plan their expenses, structure their budgets in a way to accommodate those bills. But when you have something sudden, when you crack your tooth, you're not just like, well, I'll restructure my budget over the next five months and pay for this cracked tooth, right? That's not going to happen. You can't have a phone conversation with this crack tooth that hurts so bad. So it's just unrealistic to expect people to absorb those in, into their regular budget. And when you have sudden unexpected financial shocks, that's the perfect place for insurance. The problem with the product in the market, right? is that they leave customers still having exposure to their underlying risk. What I mean, that sounds very actuarial. So what I mean by that is that if I have a critical illness product, that's great, right? Like now I have coverage if I have heart attack or cancer or have a stroke, but those are not the full universe of conditions that could occur to me that will really impact my bank account. I could get appendicitis. I could have diverticulitis. I could have, you know, I could have sepsis, yeah, right, all sorts of things can happen to you and this delicate human body we have that cause major medical bills. And so the question is, how do we create a product that's more comprehensive in that coverage and don't leave folks to essentially play condition roulette where they spin the wheel of chance and their condition may be covered or maybe not right? Our goal at Brella is to be comprehensive and there's no more playing games. You know that if you have a condition that's severe enough to cause sudden unexpected material financial shock, it's going to be covered by Brella.
0: So, How many conditions are in your product?
1: Well, we use the International Classification of Diseases, which is extremely detailed. There are thousands of conditions and, you know, breaking your right arm is a different condition from breaking your left arm. <laughs> your right pointer finger is different from your left ring finger and all that jazz. But across all the conditions, we cover 13,000 medical conditions.
0: Oh my gosh. So there goes the
1: roulette. I, I, wow. Yeah. So we've observed in the in the claims that we're processing that people really are finding this comprehensive. When they have a condition that's impacting their household, they file a claim and it's covered. So it's so rewarding to know that we're helping families every day um, with a product that finally recognizes that, you know, it's not just a handful of conditions. It's not just like you said, an MRI is huge financial expense. And you're not admitted to the hospital. It's not just hospital admission that are driving these expenses. It used to be when we had $500 deductibles.
0: Well, and I remember as a woman, you know, the only thing they really thought about was, well, you're going to have a baby, (laughs) you know, and think about all of the other, you know, health issues that women uniquely face. And so this idea of having thousands as you have that cover everything is pretty incredible. Do you have to file this? I'm assuming you file as a regular insurance product in each state and still have to go through the. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's my experience in building product for a lot of years. We won't say how many.
0: (laughs) Seven children, that's only seven years, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right. Of course. (laughs) 18 plus seven, but you're 25, 26 now.
1: <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I've filed individual health products. I've filed individual life. I've talked to regulators across these fifty states for years. You know, having and I find um, my conversations with regulators really usually productive. Um, they're looking out for the consumers in their state. Um, they're they get to see you know complaints. Um, from consumers who don't understand insurance products on a regular basis and are providing those feedback, that feedback back to, you know, insurers who are filing product and the approval process, product approval process is one way to incorporate that into our product. So, I mean, I think our product has actually gotten better as we filed it. (laughs) There's been good feedback from states. I mean, sometimes it can get a little bit frustrating, the back and forth.
0: Oh, with the Later, They're so kind and lovely, you know? (laughs) Like I said, I find most really are.
1: And they're really, you know, it's a good balance of the business forwarding the industry and them looking out for consumers. And we work together to make a product, put the product in market that's really going to serve both of those needs. I think it's great. And not to mention, they really appreciate that Brella's working on the side of the consumer. (laughs) Right? How do you go to market,
0: Amanda? Is it B2B or B2C? It's got to be a B2B.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So we are in the group employer benefit space. So we're working through brokers and strategic partners to get our product out to all the members out there.
0: That's incredible. And do you have, I probably should know this, but do you have clients? I mean, who are some of your clients? Are there some that are representative? Is there a sweet spot? Are they large clients? I mean, are we disrupting the industry and totally? <laughs> totally disrupting.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've got employers that are in the thousands of cases to less than 10 lives, all different SIC, which is business types are are in that mix. It really does go across the market. I mean, I always say the Brella product, you should have it if you have less than $20,000 in the bank, right? Because- you know, even if you've saved $5,000, do you really want to put all that at risk and go back to square one for a large medical bill?
0: Well, and 80% of people, right? They don't have $1,000 alone five. So.
1: Certainly not. Yeah. And that's even a more precarious position, huh?
0: What's an average expense look like? An average, uh, is it $1,600 or $1,800 or something in terms of a an average deductible?
1: Oh, well, and I think average is a little misleading because you've got some large employers out there who you know, are skewing that, um, that low. I think you see the range going up to $5,000 deductibles, but a $2,000, $3,000 deductible is not uncommon. And even if you have a low $1,000 deductible, You should pay attention to the size of your network and what your out-of-network coverage is because, you know, your out-of-network deductible, both your out-of-network deductible and maximum is not regulated by ACA, right? When you think about um, what your out-of-pocket max is and how that the ACA like capped that at Per person, five thousand or six thousand changes each year according to inflation. That only applies to in network. Out of network, you can have a twenty thousand dollar, twenty five thousand dollar annual max, which really leaves folks with some large exposures if the network win the network adequacy in their area isn't very strong. It's uh, you know one of the challenges of of the way our medical system works, which we have to live in in reality of right now, of the present, while we might want to change it and can talk about some ways in the future that we would like this system to be different or changed one way or the other. There's valid arguments to do that. That doesn't take away the challenges that folks face every day right now. And that's what Brella's is addressing, the problems of the present.
0: Uh, so as you think about that, everything that I hear you saying is, you know, you put people first, this is how you've designed Brella, this is your personal passion. So uh, I step back and I think about it, and you know, I have to ask myself, like, what's next for Brella? Because if you're just solving people problems, what's that? You know, what's that look like for Brella, and what's that look like for Amanda? As you think about, you know, next, next.
1: Well, I think for for Brella, I was talking to my team this morning. We're four times bigger than we were this time last year. I expect will be that much bigger again next year. We see just huge growth coming in 2022. We've laid a fantastic foundation, not only on the product filing and you know underwriting and claims process. That's sort of like my wheelhouse, but the technology side, our platform team just brings incredible strength on that side. And certainly our sales and distribution team is just absolutely killing it every day, <laughs> bringing the Brella story.
0: That's <laughs> a great story. Great story to tell.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I'm just super excited for 2022. I mean, I'm sure anybody who's built a business knows how much groundwork goes into growth, right? You can't grow until you've done that work and put in the groundwork. So we're at that point now where we have the foundation and we're ready to to fly. That's a mixed metaphor. I apologize for that. I'm sure that's... (laughs)
0: my mixed up brain can easily relate to. So yeah, perfect. (laughs) Let me ask you one crazy question to kind of leave you with, but, you know, you talked about 18 years old, you were, you know, off getting married and 19 having a baby. What would that 18, 19 year old Amanda be most excited to learn about the Amanda of 2022?
1: I think I'd be most excited to two things, actually. Number one is I learned how to build a business, which I think is a huge skill. And I'm just thrilled to death. I feel like it's so uh, empowering to be able to have an idea. I think a lot of folks have ideas that are incredible ideas. And then knowing how to or having the skills to take that idea and make it into a business. And you do it the first time and it seems overwhelming. But then the second time, you're like, I can do this. no (laughs) problems. And the third time, it's like, uh, this is what we did the last two times. Uh, This is not what I do. So that's been, I think I would be super thrilled with that. And the second thing is how I've sort of circled back to core behavioral economics, which I love to begin with, and majored in that in college, having no idea what I would do with it. But economics is at its foundation, just being curious and interested in the decisions people make without ascribing judgment to it. Is it a good or bad decision? It doesn't matter. It is the decision and understanding why and appreciating that why and then investigating the implications. I think I'm, I find that absolutely fascinating every day. Why do people make the decisions they do? Where do they have roadblocks and how can we unblock them to you know empower them to their future success? I mean, that's I love what we've done at Brawler to help folks a little bit on that pathway. And I can't wait to see what we do in the future.
0: Amanda, I love what you do. And, um, you know, I see joint research or something in the future for the two of us somewhere down the line when we're both getting ready for that second or third mountain. So I'm so grateful for you. I'm inking that in pen. Ah! You have to do that. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate you so much. I'm, I love meeting disruptors and I know how valuable your time is, so thank you so much for your authenticity and for sharing today, and and most importantly for you know helping those of us on the qualitative side get a little uh, uh street cred here. So thank you as an economist for um, <laughs> giving a shout out to the qualitative sciences, but most importantly, you know I, I appreciate all you do and for putting people first. So thanks for joining us today and sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.